Last week, Pastor Justin preached an amazing sermon. If you haven't heard it, please go to Facebook or go to our podcast, look up The Living Room on Spotify or any podcast platform and listen to this sermon that Pastor Justin preached. But he had, I'm a little jealous because he had the bulk of chapter three and somehow I gave myself the last tail end in Paul's greeting. But today we're going to sit in two verses. We're going to read from nine to 15, but I want to spend some time in verses nine, 10, and 11 with you. Three verses, I'm sorry. Verse 9 says, but, a fo- but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, having nothing more, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus, to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenas, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. And all who were with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you so much for your word. Today, Lord, as we were just talking, Lord, would you satisfy our souls? Satisfy our hearts? Satisfy our longing? Satisfy our loneliness? Satisfy our brokenness? Satisfy our covetousness? Satisfy, Lord, everything that is a void inside of us, perhaps because of sin, Father, you were able Make us whole once more and allow us to sit in this space, Lord, and listen to your word and what you are longing to speak into our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Lord, somehow I landed at the greeting that Paul gives to Titus after this amazing letter that Paul writes to this man named Titus. And I don't know about you, but perhaps You are working in your maturing as a Christian, so you can't look at Titus and be like, wow, this is a phenomenal book. But in Titus 1, we learn about the importance of Christian leadership. What is the role of Christian leadership outside of many of us looking to church leadership as kings and queens? That is not. You you notice that that's nowhere in Scripture? That men... And women are invited, even in chapter 2. He teaches us how to act. He teaches us what our assignment is in our homes, but also within this family, the fellowship of the believer. He speaks to the older men, just as he speaks to the older women. To the younger women, just as he speaks to the younger men. And so he's giving us this blueprint. This layout of what a healthy church is supposed to look like. And we've also learned, like, why was this necessary? This was a brand new church on this island of Crete. And so just like anything that is new, when I was kind of looking through this, I I remember thinking about Herbalife. And I saw something pop up on social media, and it was a really nice Herbalife stand. 
like one of those little shops that they pull up and it almost looked like a bank and they had these little slots in the counter and you would order whatever you wanted. And then I remember the stuff that I saw kind of growing up in Hempstead. And it had this weird green thing hanging in the front window. I mean, is this too contextual? Like has, no? So if you've been around Herbalife at all, I've never been into one of those. I would just drive by them and be like, what? that looks super sketchy. So now what they think they're doing is selling the same exact product, but in the manner that they're delivering this, it's, it looks like there's a right way and a wrong way. See, in this case, there were people who were excited to bring forth the work of God, but they were polluting it with their own opinions and their own strategies. So here comes Paul saying, we need to kind of wrangle this together because there is an order in the house of God. So I don't know if all of you belong to this house, but if you're here today, it's for a reason. There is order in the house of God. And I'm not talking about hierarchy. I'm talking about order, that there is leadership and that there is submission. We talked about the submission of a woman to her husband, of a wife to her husband. You all got offended, but we worked through it. But then also what we learn in Titus is that there is this submission, even of the Christian, to our authorities. Ooh, that one hurts a little bit. Because my authorities don't always make decisions that are best for me. My authorities don't make decisions that are best for the church. But I love that what he calls us to is not just to bend our knees and say yes, Because at some point, we do have to draw these lines where we say what God intends for us comes before what government intends for us. That's all right. There's a lot of Titus that you don't like. And I'm not talking about rebellion. Please understand this. I'm talking about the sovereignty of God that we yield to what God orders us. And we see this even in the Old Testament with Daniel With the three brothers, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego, remember that the reason for why they had to go into the fire was because they turned away from government, the monarchy at this time, and they said, no, I have to stand for what is right. This is what God has called me to. But our lesson is also, as much as we are able, we are to submit to the authority of our government. Do we understand this? There is order that God calls us to. You see, like we, some of you like what I just said, some of you don't. You might sit on one side and the other, but I do want to recognize there may come a time where we may be disobedient to government for the sake of obedience to God, but we must always walk in order. And as much as we are able to submit to the authority of our government. How many of you are troublemakers? Put my slide up after my, I need you guys to walk with me today. I need media to walk with me because it's not funny now. Because I put... So how many of you are troublemakers or who here is someone who likes to find themselves constantly in problems and tensions with someone else? M- media, killing me right now. There's a slide on there that says, pretend it's not you. There you go. You notice in your iPhone, if you have an iPhone, there's an emoji that does this now. 
That's my this moment. The truth is that one of the hardest things in ministry for pastors is people. But how does ministry exist without people? Well, as the math goes, if you don't know someone who is a troublemaker or someone who constantly finds themselves in problems and tensions and you're struggling to find someone in your circle, it's probably you. Because the truth is that in most circles, there is usually at least one person who is a troublemaker. There's many times, this is not always, this is not a rule of thumb, but many times someone in our group of acquaintances or friends that is like, oh, I can't tell him that. Can't tell her that because you know what she'll do. <laughs> so today's message is specifically for troublemakers. And that's why I want to sit in verses 9, 10, and 11. But let's go there quick. One of the hardest things to deal with in ministry is people. God made people for himself and for his glory. We see this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. All right? Do I need to sit in that? No. Male and female... He created them. The plan for people was a perfect plan. What people made of themselves is completely different. And remember, we saw that in the book of Ecclesiastes during our studies. That what God intended for man was good. This was a good thing that he longed to have those who would worship him. That he could pour his love over. But what we made of it in the Garden of Eden, we broke that. And you see how long it took? The world didn't even have a population yet, and somehow we found a way to ruin something beautiful. Jonathan McReynolds, I don't know if you guys listen to gospel, but he has a song that says, people, they are the best and the worst thing you've created. That was too much agreement. Like, I still want you to understand that we are to love people, even those who are hard to love. I get it, though. In the instructions that Paul is leaving with Titus, he, it, is in, it has included everything from the church leadership to the behavior and responsibilities of Christian men and women. And as Pastor Justin spoke about last week, the importance of doing good as believer, good works. But today I want to talk to the troublemakers. I want us to sit a bit in this text, specifically between verses 9 and 11, and talk about what Paul advises Titus regarding troublemakers in the church. At this time in Crete, there were troublemakers in the church. And even today, we see this. But look, let's look at the church in Crete. Verse 9 says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Let's dig into this. The word avoid in the Greek is a word called peristemi, which means to turn away from. This is saying turn away from controversies, controversies, genealogies, dissensions, which is disagreements, and quarrels about law. There are people who champion the ability to create issues. There's some people who I don't see in the house today that I feel like this word was... <laughs> I, guess, I guess the Lord was looking out for you because... 
This word is for you. And it may not even be for the sake of the church, but I don't want to speak to you just about the quarreling in the church because by the grace of the Lord Almighty, we are not a church that finds ourselves in, in, in much quarreling. And I know that may not always be the case, but I'm grateful that we have good fellowship and brotherhood and sisterhood in this house. I'm also speaking to you, though, as a Christian, a believer who also exists in the world. You see, because we, we, what we learn here in church is not just for when you sit here. It's not just for the ministries that you engage with or don't engage with. It's also for you to know how to comport yourself in the world, that the world would look to you and say, they are different. Go back to that verse for me. Verse 9. But avoid, nope, the one right before, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels. It was no different here in Crete. People who had this ability to create a problem. Remember that the church was being founded at this time. And like we read in Titus 1 verse 11, there were those who were leading the church down the wrong path, false teachers. They were leading them down the wrong way, not from outside of the church. They were leading them down the wrong path from within the church. They were preaching legalism and merited faith instead of trust in Jesus. Pastor Justin spoke last week of the importance of good works, but we must remember that we must not devote ourselves to good works. There's something that I believe in very strongly. We do not engage in good works for the sake of good works. That might not make sense to you. Well, sometimes we should just do good things and not have to worry about the gospel. No, because that's a waste of time. We're not looking just to feed people's bellies. We're looking to feed people's souls. And the excuse is the filling of the belly. We're doing a code drive right now. The code drive is an excuse for us since we're not inviting people to fill the seats next to us. We're going to go out there and find them together. And you know what the excuse is? Let me give you warmth. But not only do I want to give you warmth on the outside, I want to fill your belly with hope of Jesus Christ. You can never tell God that I did not teach you what your job was. Every single one of you in these chairs to go and make disciples of Jesus Christ. Who have you brought to Jesus? I look at the ceiling. It's not summertime. People aren't at the beach. And I know that's an excuse that we see here a lot. Oh, it's summertime, it's warm outside, and you know, yeah, we just hang out and look at all these chairs, friends. People should be running, running to any church that's open. I'm not even talking about one life. I'm talking about the need for humanity for Jesus Christ. Every single church and house church and church plant, all of them should be bursting out the seams because everybody in our communities, everybody in our circles, all of our friends need what you are getting right now. How are we doing that? So we should not just devote ourselves to doing these good things because a lot of times it's just for us to feel good. But we should engage in good works because of obedience to God. Our devotion should be only to God and in our faith and trust in Jesus, we engage in good works out of obedience to love others. Do you see this? So it's not just to feed the hungry. It's not just to clothe those who don't have clothing. It's not just to help the needy. 
It's out of obedience to God to love one another extravagantly. So we don't do things just for doing them's sake. We have our Harvest Festival coming up next Sunday. Are you prepared to engage with one of our neighbors and invite them to the church and show them how kind we are? Last year's Harvest Festival, friends, was phenomenal. We saw over 250 people, including the church, but also from the community come out. They had no idea that we had so, such beautiful diversity in this house. But because we were willing to go outside, they got to see something beautiful. And some of you are a result of that. Are we willing to engage in that good work for the sake of the gospel next week? First here, Paul says to avoid foolish controversies. Paul had given Titus so many helpful and positive tips. We see that in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And here we see that he tells Titus to be warned against these negative things. Jesus calls us to spend our energy in loving one another and being reconciled one to the other. Not to engage in foolish debates. I don't see anybody writing this down. Do not engage in foolish debates. Some people just love to argue and debate for no reason. And have you noticed that you're tempted? You just... Let me... So remember that, that word avoid is to turn away from. So what he's literally saying, the minute someone is pushing your buttons, I love you. And you walk away and you leave. I do this all the time. It's possible. I need you to understand this. And it's not even to be mean. Well, I need to sit and listen at least. And No. Even in your home, you notice husband and wife. That, damn, nobody knows how to push your buttons like your wife. Wife, no one knows how to push your buttons like your husband. But even in the home, he is saying avoid foolish controversy and dissension, agreement, disagreement. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23 to 24, Paul says to Timothy, have nothing, once again, this is a completely different student. This is Timothy, not Titus. Having nothing, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. This is to the church then in Ephesus, and also now to you. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, and patiently enduring evil. If you don't have a Bible, grab the one in front of you and underline that last little bit, patiently enduring evil. There are people in your life who I know right now you can perceive as evil unto your life. But God calls us, it says very clearly here, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, not just your preferred few, able to teach and patiently enduring evil. A believing Christian must turn away from foolish debates. It is unfruitful and a complete waste of your time. If you're finding yourself constantly arguing with someone, do you know how much time you've wasted? I don't know about you, but I do not have time for that. And even in ministry, I will admit, if you see that sometimes I kind of keep my distance from you and regarding a specific topic of argument, it is for a reason. It is because I'm obedient to the Bible. 
and I do not engage in foolish controversy. <laughs> then Paul says, <laughs> then Paul says to avoid genealogies, and this is a weird one. What do you mean avoid genealogies? But it was not uncommon for people to trace back and present to others their genealogies so as to prove that they were better in standing than others. Can you put that genealogy up for me? Just to give you an example of Hebrew genealogy. So people would use this to come to you and say, you know why God favors me more? It's because my granddaddy was all the way up there and this is me here now. We also saw this in the Old Testament with the rabbis who would fight about their bloodline. The reason why God favors me in this house and my ministry is because of who I come from. Here, this is happening in the church, though the false teachers, through the false teachers that we learned about in Titus 1, there was this constant unhealthy arguing about who was better and why. And so they didn't have much to use in this church, so what they would use are the genealogies where I come from. I come from a strong family. I'm worthy of you listening to me. And the grand picture, friends, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, no one cares who your granddaddy was. Have you noticed that like me standing up here and telling you that somewhere down the line, my family came from this country and that country? Like, how, how does that affect the work of God here? It's all about who your God is and what you're doing to bring the lost to him. Because the truth is that perhaps you don't know where you come from. But what you do know is where God is sending you. And that is all we need. Legalists of this time, they didn't understand this. They were always trying to one-up one another. So Paul also says to avoid dissension and quarreling about what? About the law. They would prefer to engage in theological and hypothetical arguments in order that someone might win instead of engaging in these good works together. God was telling them what to do. Jesus had modeled for them what to do, but instead they were used to what they were used to, which is to sit around a table and talk about the law and how they were able to accomplish it, but others weren't. What were they doing here? Hey, I'm better than you are. I do this better than you do. In my time of working in ministry and with people, I have found that those who willingly and deliberately engage in theological and legalistic debates and arguments are people who are actively hiding sin in their lives and in their hearts. They fight for the seen because they're masquerading the unseen. So we're trying to accomplish something in the seen because I know what in my heart I'm putting a mask over by what you can see. You're not fooling God. Through Jesus, all who would receive him as Lord and Savior were washed and made clean. That is the only time where we can come together and say this is what we've done Together, that Jesus Christ has washed us and made us clean. So arguments about who is better or who does this better or who does that better or who has more favor from even the pastor or the leadership of the church and certainly before the Lord, you have to understand that before God, we are all equal, including those in leadership. If anything, what we're not equal in is the responsibility when we preach falsely. 
because we have, those who God has called to preach his word, we carry a heavier responsibility. And one would think that we would look to scripture and say, I need to be careful with this. I need to go to the Father with what to feed the church because one day I'm going to be judged more harshly by the Father. So when I stand before God, his questions to me may not sound like the questions to you if he hasn't called you to this work. So you would think that we would be up here trembling to preach the word. I'm glad that you can laugh a little bit, friends. I'm glad that you can smile. God wants joy in our hearts. I do it on purpose. I long to be dynamic for you to listen to me for just 30 minutes. But the truth is that at the end of this time together and at the end of our lives and when our Lord Jesus Christ returns because he will return, that when he comes and I come before him, that I'd be able to say that all I longed to do was to teach you this word. Are you learning this word for yourself? And it's important because remember that he calls us to go and make disciples of others. And so if you place yourself in the space of a teacher, are you preaching the truth? We see this behavior also between the disciples in Matthew chapter In Luke chapter 8, excuse me, we see this behavior between the disciples, also where they would argue and engage in foolish disagreements because they wanted Jesus to look at them as better than the other apostles and disciples. For those of you who studied the book of Matthew with me, remember we were seeing that? Lord, who do you you see as better? And they were trying to gain Jesus' favor, the rabbi, the teacher's favor. Paul says, to avoid these behaviors. Why? Because they are unprofitable and because they are worthless. So if you ask me, pastor, why should I avoid? Like, I feel like if somebody is wanting to argue with me, I should engage. I feel like if somebody cuts me off, I should go and ask them why they cut me off. Just to kind of link the sermon with the meditation. (laughs) The communion meditation about Lynn's road rage. We're praying, Lord. Um, And so Paul makes it very clear. He says it's unprofitable and worthless. I I feel like I don't have to explain that to you, right? Have you noticed that, especially like in this season of the, everything we went through with the pandemic and then with the elections and all this stuff and government and you sit in Facebook, how many times have you won a Facebook argument? How many times have you long, uh, have you logged into some type of social media, engaged in some type of disagreement, and received a message from the other person saying, you know what, you changed my mind? <laughs> the answer is probably never. But in brotherhood and sisterhood, how many times have you sat with somebody, perhaps in private, and said, listen, we need to s- discuss this situation. And with love, understanding, and with the willingness to listen to the other person because a lot of us argue, but we don't listen to what the other person is saying. As you're arguing, all you're doing is getting your response ready for that person. You don't even know what they're saying. They might be saying the same exact thing you're saying. You're just waiting to respond. But to sit with one another, engage in genuine, honest, and loving, and kind conversation. And in a... In a setting, in a context like that, you might find that the other person says, and this, I've done this. You know what? You're right. But it's in kindness that we do that, not in this troubled and unkind quarreling. In verse 10, he says, as for a person who stirs up division, for those of you who like prescriptions through scripture, what do we do with a person that has this 
spirit of division in the church. Paul says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Hold on really quick. This is what Paul is saying about those within the fellowship who insist on stirring up division. If someone is found guilty of stirring up issues, this tells us to do what? First, warn him once. And we also see this in Christian, um, oh my God, Christian discipline, Matthew chapter 18. When you go home, read it. Make a note, Matthew 18. What does the Bible, what does Jesus say about Christian discipline? Paul is making reference to this in a way. After you've gone to this person once and then gone to this person twice, that means forgive them the first, forgive them the second, and keep forgiving. But it also tells you afterwards, if they have no change in behaviors or are, are unrepentant according to biblical discipline that we see in Matthew 18, then we should have nothing more to do with him. And it's right there. Titus chapter 3, verse 10, have nothing more to do with him. Some people, some theologians think that this means that we should just stop trying with them and just leave them be. Hold on, I'm, I'm trying to listen to the Holy Spirit right now. I disagree with this. Somebody who has a spirit of division is a cancer in the church. And we're called pastors and shepherds for a reason. If among the flock, there is one who is cancerous or sickly or has the ability to infect others because the truth is that people who carry spirit of dissension and spirit of disagreement are a spreadable cancer. They can infect other people. And that's why we see gossip in the church. If you've been tended to once and twice, and we've been brought, right? Because that's what Matthew 18 says. First, we go to the person directly. And if they don't listen, now we bring somebody else, an elder of the church, somebody in leadership to come and sit. And they are spoken to once more about their behaviors. They're accused formally about what they're engaging in sinfully. And then if they don't change their ways, you now bring it in front of the church. This is in the Bible, friends. And we don't see this much in church. I know it's uncomfortable, but this is what God tells us to do. In the same Matthew, 8, Matthew 18, he says, now you bring them in front of the church, and now they are accused in their sin before the church. See, the problem is that the reason why we don't see it is because if I did that here, you would be like, wow, pastor, that's, that's mean, right? <laughs> I would be the one in the wrong, right? When the truth is, I would just be obedient. And the reason why I would engage in that and why we would engage in that as church leadership is because we're caring for you. You see how we should perceive these things? And what he says is not stop dealing with this person. Keep loving them. And I'm not saying don't love these people. Some people think that it's just to leave them alone and leave them be. And I don't believe this to be the case. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 to 13. Paul tells the church that if someone has found themselves engaged in sexual immorality or greed or is a reviler or a swindler, that they should be purged from, 
from among them. To purge means to be removed. So you can leave the cancer sitting, but all it's going to do is make everything worse. It says to purge them from among you. It is my understanding of this wording that in unrepentance of a person is a disruption to God's body, they must be removed. But I do know this, because we can't end there. The Jesus that I know is a Jesus of unlimited forgiveness. And thank God for that, because men aren't the same way. But Jesus is. And there is always space and a hope for reconciliation. I teach this often to our young adults who are just learning to build out their relationships. Forgiveness doesn't always require proximity. You can forgive somebody, but that doesn't mean you have to bring them into your home. That is not a free license to get rid of everybody in your life. Because we're just so extreme with things that are convenient to us. Well, you hurt me once, so I'm never going to talk to you again. Oh, you're forgiven. No, they're not. No, they're not. Forgiveness is extravagant, and it's obvious. What I'm saying is, can I still love you deeply, but not always have you around me? Because you are unrepentant. Because our forgiveness towards others shouldn't be contingent on whether they've asked for forgiveness or not. Does that make sense? Sometimes people won't come to you and say, you know what? I'm sorry. Forgive me. We also don't know how to ask for forgiveness, by the way, because people ask for forgiveness and don't know what they're being forgiven for. I I was expecting my wife to say, amen. It's like, I I don't want you to just say, I'm sorry. I want you to know why you're saying, I'm sorry, right? (laughs) The husbands, I feel like the husbands understood what I was talking about. My only response is, babe, I just, I just, I don't want you to be upset anymore. Apparently that doesn't work. But in our Christian walk, we cannot wait for other people to ask for forgiveness. We must offer them immediate forgiveness. But in that forgiveness, we are to exercise our wisdom because this is not saying after you've spoken them once, forgiven them once, forgiven them a second time, don't forgive them again. No, it doesn't say that. You forgive them, but they must be removed. I pray that nothing like that happens here. But you know what? It might. Some people are set in their ways, and some of us are coming to this house, and we have no idea why we're here. You call yourself a Christian, but you don't know Jesus. And I don't say that legalistically. It's an invitation for you to say, you know what? Maybe I don't know Jesus. Because he doesn't just invite us to gather together and sing songs together. He invites us to change. Remember, we spoke about a couple of weeks ago. Lord, how do I know that you are active and alive in my life? Have you changed? Have you changed? Some of us are afraid to change because somebody else might look at us differently. If someone else loving you is contingent on how you act, that is not a friend. If it's contingent on what you are able to give them, that is not somebody you want in your life. I'd rather have nothing and have my soul satisfied by Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Let's pray.